Xtalks connects professionals in the life science, medical device, and food industries with useful content like webinars, job openings, articles, and virtual meetings to help you succeed in your career. This life science-focused podcast brings together some of our editorial staff to share insights into the latest B2B industry news to keep you up to date. This week on the show, we are discussing the WHO calling for lower costs for life-saving COVID treatments and Nestle marketing an oral microbiome drug for CDI. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Xtalks Life Science Podcast. I'm Sarah Hand, Editor-in-Chief at Xtalks.com, and this week I'm joined by Aisha Rashid, Sydney Perlmutter, and Mira Nabulsi. Thanks for coming today. Aisha, I think you wanted to start us off with a story, so take it away. Sure thing. Thanks, Sarah. So I'm going to start off uh, today's podcast with a story about Nestle and how it's planning to market an oral microbiome drug to treat C. difficile. So the food and beverage giant has actually entered into an agreement with a microbiome therapeutics company called Ceres Therapeutics to commercialize the company's investigational oral microbiome drug for recurrent C. difficile infection. Um, and this commercialization is for the drug in the U.S. and Canada. Now, this agreement actually expands on in an existing partnership between the two companies that uh, was struck back in 2016, so about five years ago or so. Now, in this deal, um, Nestle actually gained commercialization rights outside of the U.S. and Canada for four experimental drugs, um, two for irritable bowel disease and um, two for C. difficile. So C. difficile is, of course, a leading cause of hospital-acquired uh, infections in the U.S., and it claims the lives of more than 20,000 people in the country every year. The infection is characterized by severe diarrhea and can lead to life-threatening inflammation of the colon. So under the agreement, uh, Nestle will use its global pharmaceutical business called A-Immune Therapeutics, and it'll take the role of the lead commercialization party for the drug, uh, which is termed uh, SCR109 or SIR109. So C. difficile infections usually develop after treatment with antibiotics as they can kill off the healthy bacteria in the gut while targeting the pathogenic uh, bacteria. So to help restore the microbiome, the uh, SIR109 is an oral microbiome drug that delivers purified uh, bacterial spores in capsule form. And the specific bacteria is called Firmicutes, and so this pill consists of Firmicutes microbes, um, and this specific species is an important protective microbe in the gut, and it's also involved in the life cycle of C. difficile and disease pathogenesis. So the SIR109 um, drug repopulates the microbiome to foster compositional and functional changes that are important to sustain uh, a clinical response. Now, as part of the deal uh, with Nestle, the series will receive license payments of up to $175 million up front with an additional $125 million upon uh, FDA approval of the drug. 
while series will cover all development and pre-commercialization costs in the U.S., uh, upon commercialization, it'll be entitled to 50% of the uh, commercial profits. So both companies are excited to embark on this next phase in their partnership. Uh, Nestle is saying that uh, they're excited to uh, expand this existing uh, collaboration with Ceres. And actually, you know, Nestle's Amine Therapeutics um, has a strong foothold in the area of gastroenterology. Um, I was just reading more about this, and that's how it, you know, having an interest in the field, it was able to uh, strike this deal with Ceres and uh, maintain a strategic role and participate in the launch of the newest drug that the company has developed. So the commercialization uh, efforts are supported and based on data from a late stage study of the drug that was released last year. And it showed that patients who took uh, the microbiome drug were actually significantly less likely to have recurrent C. difficile infections. And this data came from a phase three study and uh, in which the primary endpoint was met and a statistically significant reduction in the rate of C. difficile infection recurrence was seen compared to placebo. And this was seen at a period of eight weeks with an absolute reduction of 27% and a relative risk reduction of 68%. And in a separate measure, around 88% of patients achieved sustained clinical response at week eight. So the randomized study involved about 182 patients who received the drug or placebo. And the trial is now continuing as an open label trial where all patients have access to the drug. And Ceres plans to use this data to file for FDA approval. Uh, however, uh, the FDA requires at least 300 patients to have been treated with the drug. So it's expecting, the company is expecting that it will be able to reach that target um, to support a BLA filing. And microbiome-restoring uh, drugs are actually uh, gaining momentum and are growing uh, in the area of uh, gastroenterology. So there are a couple of other companies, including Finch Therapeutics and um, another one, um, Rebiotics, that's, that's right. So they've been developing similar um, oral microbiome drugs that are targeted to restoring the gut microbiota after uh, C. difficile infection and to prevent the recurrence of the infection. Hmm. So very, very interesting um, sort of approach in trying to uh, mitigate or prevent the recurrence of C. difficile infections. First, I think my question is, um, what do you think about this this kind of a drug? And number two, actually, just talking about infectious disease in general, um, with the pandemic, of course, um, sort of still upon us, uh, and um, we're trying to make our way out of it. In some, I mean, of course, we've all become more aware of of, of hand hygiene and and you know things like that, but. Have you guys found yourself to be overall more conscious of pathogenic things in your environment or are you kind of like, okay, I'm done with this pandemic and you're like, whatever happens, happens? Because I, no, I know some people like with that kind of attitude, but how, is, how has it changed your perception of infectious diseases in general, I would say, going into the future? 
Hmm. Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think that um, we had a webinar actually recently on antimicrobial resistance mm -hmm. and how um, that's something that there's been a renewed focus on addressing that globally uh, since the start of the pandemic, not only because COVID-19 really opened everyone's eyes to the threat of infectious disease and the fact that it's not just one you know, country's problem, uh, but also because of the fact that there's been a lot of secondary, you know, bacterial infections associated with COVID, particularly um, due to, you know, intubation and things like that. So not necessarily, um, you know, gut infections, more so, um, you know, pulmonary infections. Um, I, my hope is that, you know, that continues, I think, and, and that more resources are, are poured into that area, because that was one of the really big take-home messages of that um, event that we hosted was that, uh, really, there's just not enough work going into it, and, and there's a lot of reasons for that. But one of the reasons is that um, so many new antibiotics, you know, fail in late-stage clinical trials. And so the companies that are developing them, especially the smaller um, pharma companies, there's the possibility that they'll just go go under if, if those compounds don't succeed. Um, and that there is a lot of... Uh, expertise that's lost in the space once these companies go away. So uh, I think it's going to be top of mind for, for a lot of people for a long time to come. And I, and I hope to see more development in this space. I actually yeah. had a question uh, for you too, Aisha. Is is this drug that you're talking about, that's an oral, it is an oral drug, right? It's an oral, an oral drug. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Because I, it made me think of, um, you know, as you were saying, there's been more interest in uh, using probiotics, I guess, essentially, right, to kind of outcompete um, those pathogenic mm -hmm. bacteria. Um, and I know a few years ago, I haven't read anything recently, but a few years ago, a really big um, area of research was in fecal transplants. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So that's why I was interested about the mode of delivery, I guess, of, of this drug, because I think one of the problems with a lot of probiotic formulations right now is um, that just not enough live bacteria actually reach the gut in order to be able to colonize it. It's like really hard to, I think, design something like a capsule that's going to survive the stomach acid and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, I'm interested to see, you know, how they designed this particular drug to overcome that, I guess, and, and see some positive results in these patients. Yeah, so they've actually developed this uh, capsule that contains one specific uh, type or species of bacteria, and, mm. and they have the spores incorporated into that kind of a capsule. So very interesting mm. um, how they actually targeted and honed in on just one spe specific right. kind of species that they find to be implicated in right. uh, CDIs. And, and um, so, yeah, very interesting indeed. And I think, you know, the importance of, of the microbiome in general we're seeing in health and disease, like, you know, almost, you know, every day I'm reading something new about how the microbiome is implicated in you know, diseases like neurological diseases to cancer to, um, so, you know, it plays a huge role in, in, in general overall health. So I think we're going to be seeing a lot of these kinds of microbiome based drugs moving mm. forward for a lot of different diseases. And, um, yeah. 
I've actually, I'd never heard of C. difficile before you wrote about it. So, and I didn't know how many people it affected. So, um, and I, I, I don't think I'm alone in that. Um, but yeah, the pandemic, I mean, from my own perspective, I haven't gotten a common cold since before the pandemic. Mm, Not yeah. that that is an infectious disease per se, but it's definitely well, a common trend among, you know, friends of mine too. And I think that just it plays it. That's, I think that's just a result of us being in lockdowns and, and not communicating with as many people as we usually do. But I think overall, we just have to stress the basics of hand washing, covering one's mouth when coughing or sneezing. Um, and yeah, that's that's I, I've definitely put a, more of an emphasis on that in my daily life. And I'll continue to do so even as my hands get crusty and dry throughout <laughs> the winter. <laughs> We'll just get more moisturizer, but yeah, I think we just have to stress the basics. It's a win for moisturizer companies. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and it's true. I mean, colds and 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 flu are certainly infectious diseases, and they require um, contact to spread. And so I think they've Absolutely. seen, um, yeah, in the past year, you know, case numbers have been so low and that's been something that people have kind of heralded, I guess, as some sort of silver lining of the pandemic, you know, with the, with that reduced social contact. Um, but I think others, you know, other physicians are concerned about this year and what's, what's that going to look like now um, that people are kind of getting out again. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I also think the pandemic, like in terms of common colds and stuff, has really shed a light about the idea that if you're sick, don't go stay out, home. right? Yeah. Yeah, stay <laughs> home. Like pre-pandemic, if you had the sniffles, you wouldn't mm-hmm. take a sick day. You would yeah. go into work anyways and infect mm-hmm. a bunch of people because you're like, oh, it's just the cold. Mm-hmm. But now it's like, no, actually stay home. Like no one wants to get sick. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think it changed a lot of the basic mindsets that we had before the pandemic to changing it for the better. This is definitely a silver lining, yeah. I think, especially Even- in schools. Yeah. Where colds are spread so quickly amongst children. Um, yeah, but then some would argue that's good for their, for developing immunity, their immune yeah. systems and things like <laughs> that. So line. it's a fine line, exactly. Yeah. And I think even things like mask wearing might become more of an acceptable norm. Like if you are sick, if you know, maybe people will pull out a mask and and, and wear it. You know, before mm-hmm. it seemed to be if you see saw the odd person wearing a mask and kind of be like, oh whoa, like you know what's going on there, but it's become obviously normalized because it's been mandated. So maybe moving forward, that's going to be a way um, people might be engaging in infection control and be interested. Yeah. I was also thinking about all of the infection control and prevention um, procedures put in place by hospitals as well and how that's just been ramped up exponentially. And I wonder, um, you know, how much of that is going to stick around uh, after the pandemic, maybe more of it than we think, or or maybe um, it's going to depend on having access to the right, um, you know, PPE and that sort of thing. Maybe we won't see the same kind of shortages we did at the, the beginning. Mm-hmm. And maybe hospitals will see, you know, hey, this is preventing other secondary infections as well. Um, so this is something we should add into our regular, you know, best practices for treating these types of patients, let's say. Yeah, I wonder how, what the rates of C. difficile infections have been during the pandemic in hospitals. And Sydney, yeah, like, I mean, uh, I wasn't aware as to the extent of it either in terms Mm. of, like, how many people it affects every year. So that was surprising to see, but 
Yeah, and part of this is also the like antimicrobial resistance piece. Yep. So it would have been likely easier, I don't know, a decade ago to, to treat these infections, I would think. Uh, maybe there was less, uh, yeah, antibiotic resistance at that time. But now we're really needing to look for alternatives um, because the legacy antibiotics that we we relied on for so long are are losing effectiveness in a lot of cases. Um, and even some of the the newer antibiotics that have come out, um, there's these resistance, you know, um, mechanisms that are that are being uh, identified in certain pathogens. So it's just making it harder to treat, which is really scary. But um, certainly, if something like this microbiome kind of probiotic drug would work. I think that's great. Yeah, you know, in reference to, to that webinar and uh, the piece that you wrote based on it, Sarah, mm. uh, it's very shocking because I think recently, just like I think last year, the World Health Organization, I believe, had declared AMR, antimicrobial resistance, as like one of the top um, health threats globally. Mm. Mm-hmm. And to see, you know, to to have, you know, learn from that webinar and from your piece on it that, you know, investment into research into AMR and just therapies for alternatives for infectious diseases is not um, funded as as much as we thought and Mm -hmm. how, you know, that was very shocking and surprising to me. But hopefully the pandemic changes that. And because there's been a huge focus, of course, on infectious diseases, and hopefully that will trend towards um, trying, you know, having companies um, and investors really and make it a global effort with governments to really target, you know, AMR um, because it's such a growing health problem globally. Okay, so with that, um, we move on to another story. And um, talking about COVID, uh, let's talk about a new treatment actually that uh, was approved recently by the World Health Organization. So uh, the WHO has, well, not approved, but has backed the use of interleukin-6 receptor blockers as a treatment for COVID-19 for patients that are severely or critically ill with the infection. And the IL-6 receptor blockers are to be used uh, in conjunction with corticosteroids. So the IL-6 receptor antagonists are used to treat things like rheumatoid arthritis, and some of the drugs uh, include Roche's Actemra and Regeneron and Sanofi's jointly developed Kevzera or Seralumab. So the WHO added this class of drugs to its patient care guidelines recently deeming the drugs to be a life-saving COVID-19 treatment in combination with uh, steroids. So IL-6 receptor antagonists are monoclonal antibodies against the IL-6 receptor. And so patients that have severe COVID-19 often have an overactivation of the immune system. And this involves the increased release of cytokines. Um, And this is known as cytokine release syndrome. And cytokines like IL-6... are overproduced and um, in have been found to be produced in high levels in cytokine release syndrome. So by blocking the cytokine from binding to its receptor, this hyperactive immune response can be dampened and uh, tamed. So monoclonal antibodies are generally 
um, quite expensive. So given this, the World Health Organization has called on uh, manufacturers, so called on Roche, Regeneron, Sanofi, to reduce the cost of the drugs because they're too expensive to be um, deployed in many parts of the world, as the agency said. Now, this is the, actually the first class of drugs that uh, the WHO has approved for COVID-19 treatment since um, September 2020, so last year, and that was when it approved and gave the nod to the use of corticosteroids like dexamethasone. Now, this doesn't come without a bit of controversy because IL-6 receptor antagonists for COVID-19 um, actually gave rise to mixed results in trials last year. Hmm. Um, so a couple of trials actually show that the drug didn't significantly improve survival or reduce the risk of deaths. However, over time and with more data, um, it seems that the drugs do uh, offer an overall benefit in improving patient outcomes, including survival. So that's uh, kind of been a, a change that we've been seeing that we've seen over time and with um, new data. Now, despite COVID-19 vaccinations, of course, picking up around the world, um, there still remains a need for effective treatments, um, especially in areas of the world where infections are increasing, especially in light of new variants like the Delta variant and low vaccine supplies um, in some countries. So the data that I'm that I was speaking about um, in term or the latest data actually of the IL six receptor antagonists um, involved. So the WHO actually updated the treatment um, based on data from a perspective and a living network meta analysis that was initiated by the agency itself, and it's been the largest analysis on the drugs to date. Um, Combined, the analyses involve data from over 10,000 patients enrolled in 27 clinical trials around the world, and the studies show that the drugs um, are able to reduce the odds of death by 13% and cut the risk of progressing to uh, needing mechanical ventilation by 28% among uh, severe and critically ill COVID-19 patients, and this is compared uh, to standard of care. So overall, this means that 23 fewer patients out of 1,000 would need mechanical ventilation uh, with the drug. And uh, yeah, so similarly in the UK, the use of uh, these IL-6 um, receptor blockers have also been approved and um, Prior to this formal recommendation by the WHO, uh, many doctors had already been using this drug as, uh, or the, these drugs as a last resort for severely ill COVID-19 patients. So just to put into perspective how expensive these drugs are, a 20 meg dose of Actemra costs uh, $491, while a 150 uh, milligram dose of Kevzera is $700. And Sales of these drugs jumped last year due to COVID-19. I think Actemra sales, which is developed by Roche, uh, reached $3.12 billion last year, and that was a 32% increase from uh, 2019, and a similar 30% jump in sales for Regeneron and Sanofi's drugs. So that's why the WHO's expressed concern over the price of the drugs um, 
you know, the director general of the WHO said that the drugs offer hope, but, you know, what's the point if um, they remain inaccessible and unaffordable for the majority of the world? So that's why he's calling on manufacturers to reduce prices and make supplies available to low and middle income countries, especially where COVID-19 is surging. And he said this in a statement from uh, the agency. And of course, the inequitable distribution of vaccines has been an issue and, an, and is an ongoing issue during the pandemic. And now we have the same kind of scenario for drugs as well. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on this and, um, and on you know, the WHO's recommendation for this drug and also its stance on trying to ensure equitable um, access to the drug. Yeah, there, there are a lot of pieces to this. I think, um, you know, when you shared the kind of controversial data uh, on the effectiveness of giving this to um, these types of drugs to COVID-19 patients, I, so you said that um, 23 fewer patients out of 1,000 would need mechanical ventilation. I mean, I guess yeah. that's still 23 patients. I wonder... Um, how significant that is, I guess. But as you also pointed out, there it's not like we have a ton of other drugs to mm -hmm. choose from, right? It's not like, oh, you know what? This this isn't that significant. Let's just go ahead with one of our other options. There really isn't a lot. Um, so I guess any new, you know, drug that that can help improve outcomes in in these patients is is better than nothing. I think. Uh, the pricing side of it is really tough as well. As you said, it's an antibody drug. Like they tend to be biologics just are more expensive. Um, I wonder if there's any like biosimilar versions of these drugs mm -hmm. in the pipeline from other companies. Um, that's also really, you know, tough to get approval for those. But the idea there is, you know, it would be like the generic version of this, it, this drug. So hopefully it would be less expensive. Um, but I suppose even if they're in the pipeline, unless they're pretty far down the pipeline, yeah. it's unlikely that they would do any help right now when they're really needed. Yeah, um, that's something that the WHO actually addressed. I think they launched what they're calling an expression of interest for pre-qualification of manufacturers of hmm. IL-6 yeah, receptor blockers. So mm -hmm. the goal is to pre-qualify uh, companies that are um, developing biosimilar products. Um, right. So again, in aims to expand availability. Mm -hmm. Get some more competition, maybe. And, and competition, yeah. Yeah, I also wonder, like, what this demand for these this drug class now for this kind of alternate indication means for patients who have been using it for you said rheumatoid, uh, yeah, rheumatoid, rheumatoid arthritis, arthritis and things like that. Um, because remember the whole, what was yeah. that, the, that um, lupus drug, right? Yes, um, the name slips. Looking it up. Oh, that was hydroxychloroquine, right? Oh, I think. it was hydroxychloroquine. I think it yeah, was, it because was, I remember yeah. at the time, it's, well, even though yeah. that's, that's it's not It's an anti-malarial, but also it's, yeah, it's used for, mm -hmm. yeah. Even though that's not been shown to kind of make any difference, mm -hmm. um, I know there was a really big demand for that for a little bit, and then all of a sudden, you know, lupus pa patients were saying, "Hey, we also rely on this." So, so what do you do with that? I guess. Yeah. Um, and then the yeah the the vaccines piece and and getting that to countries that weren't able to to secure millions of doses before they were even available. I think there's a lot of moving parts to this. 
I have a bit of a question along with a personal anecdote since we were talking about other uh, uh, treatments or, you know, some potential correlations. Um, my dad was telling me that uh, his doctor had told him that because of uh, the, you know, cocktail of, of, of drugs that he takes on a daily basis for arthritis and other autoimmune um, illnesses, that he is less likely to even get COVID. Um, mm. Yeah, so he, he said that, and, and I said that's great um, because, you know, less less likelihood, you know, is, is, is great for him. But I'm wondering, like, you know, if the basis for a lot of these COVID treatments is just, you know, existing medications or, it, it, like, I, I'm not really sure. Yeah, so, I mean, they... Um you know, because COVID obviously very new disease and, and, and um, things like that, drug repurposing, basically taking existing drugs and trying them out um, for COVID is, you know, something that, you know, began really early on during the pandemic, um, really, because um, there were no treatments for, Mm -hmm. for it. Right. So um, I I think there was the recovery trial. I think that's one of the biggest trials in the UK. And I think one arm of it, they were, um, you know, just repurposing all different types of drugs. And that's how they came upon, you know, um, anti-inflammatories like dexamethasone, steroids and rheumatoid arthritis drugs and things like that. Just trying to test anything and everything to see what would work and uh, hopefully something would work. Yeah. Yeah, I think the interesting thing as well about uh, treating viral infections is like a lot of, you're right, Sydney, a lot of this is drug repurposing because as Aisha was saying, you know, there hasn't been enough time to really develop anything new. Um, But one of the interesting things is that you're usually not, you know, you're not really targeting the virus itself. You're just targeting so many of the... um, outcomes or side effects, I guess you could say, of being infected by COVID and especially for these like severe cases um, that require hospitalization and and a stay in the ICU and that kind of thing. Because I feel like that's the same thing even before COVID um, that was done with influenza. It's like if you go to your doctor and you have the flu, they can't really give you anything. Like antibiotics aren't going to do anything against a viral infection. It's more so you know, what can we do to address, you know, oh, you have a fever, um, take ibuprofen or whatever it is, right? That's sort of an oversimplification, I guess. But um, I yeah. think that's the other simp- interesting thing about treating COVID is it's it's not, it's almost not even really a treatment yeah. for COVID. It's sort of the specific aspect of when a specific person is infected with COVID and they, they experience this. This is how we treat this to hopefully improve outcomes. So Yeah, it's about yeah. managing the symptoms and managing the condition once you already have it, right? So mm-hmm. there's two kind of categories <laughs> um, if we're talking about therapeutics one or would be the antivirals that actually target the virus but those as we've seen for so many you know viral diseases um, they're kind of hard to develop and the you know they don't really meet with the best um, outcomes in clinical trials Uh, Mm -hmm. most of them you know kind of fail Mm -hmm. um, as do most drugs in clinical trials, but antivirals specifically have been kind of tricky to develop. And then on the other hand, you have, um, like I said, to manage the condition. So to manage things like cytokine storm or cytokine release syndrome Mm. after the fact. So that's where these drugs like the the rheumatoid arthritis drugs and um, 
as anti-inflammatories, essentially, because COVID is, um, of course, the complications from COVID can lead to very, very bad um, inflammatory reactions. And so those drugs are then, are then used to manage um, that. So, hmm. yeah. I'd like to play devil's advocate for a moment. <laughs> Just talking about this article a little bit, uh, Aisha, that you wrote about the WHO, mm-hmm. is the first thought I have instantly, I know it's not ethical maybe, but is why would these companies want to lower their costs, right? Like I they know. Don't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So for WHO, such a big organization to tell them, you know, lower your prices. I feel like an incentive needs to be played here to let them lower the prices. And then we're talking about all these repurposing of these different drugs that are helping people or helping the symptoms of COVID. Yes, the lupus thing happened. And yes, this is happening now. I feel like pharma companies are really like looking forward to these events right so this whole repetitive idea of lowering costs I think it's like it's not achievable I don't think companies want to do that and I don't think companies will so I feel like there needs to be other solutions to you know things like this is like helping the general public purchase these products these drugs instead of telling the company oh you need to lower your prices for example you know what I mean well, in the U.S., I mean, do you think insurance companies are going to be open to that idea either? So, you know, assisting patients and, you know, sort of reducing premiums and costs. I don't know. It's kind of it's very tricky. Yeah, it is a tricky topic, but I like to talk about it just to see what other ideas people can come up with that could possibly, you know, help this circum this situation I don't know like the the whole time you were speaking that's the first thought that kept coming to my mind is these companies are obviously not going to lower costs because they are in control of the market or the you know the drug itself so what other solutions but yeah as you said I don't know like um I was just throwing ideas and thoughts here (laughs) yeah I don't know if these these drug makers have responded to the WHO's call to lower the prices of these drugs um, oftentimes what you see, though, are the trade groups like pharma and bio issuing a statement, you know, kind of saying, listen, it costs a lot to develop these drugs. And so these companies need to in some way recoup the, you know, millions that they're spending over a decade to develop this drug. Um, that's often, I think, how they... Uh, back up their decisions, their drug pricing decisions. But you're right, Mira, this has been a conversation for years and years and years, particularly in the US of, you know, why are drugs so expensive, especially when you compare it to other countries like, um, like Canada, uh, in Europe, things like that. I think there are in other countries, stricter um, price controls on on these companies so that they can't just come up with like an insane list price for a drug. But then again, you know, there's the whole complicated beast of the um, private insurance company system in the U.S. And so that's sort of another part of it. They don't have socialized medicine like like we do here or they do in a lot of European countries. Um, So that's sort of another level to it. I mean, I agree. There isn't a whole lot of reason for them to say, okay, you're right. You you caught us. Okay, we're going to lower the price. It was a little crazy. We just thought we'd try and get away with it or whatever. You're right. They don't really have a whole lot of incentive to do that. Um, 
I, I think, I, I don't know. Sometimes you see sort of like humanitarian type programs where they say, listen, yeah, we're going to provide this many doses to this country because otherwise they wouldn't have access to this and, and that kind of thing. I, I think like during COVID too, we've seen a lot more, um, a, a lot more of that with, with companies, I guess. And like with that uh, COVAX facility that a yeah. lot of countries have worked on to try and make sure that we have equitable access to, to the vaccines across the world, regardless of wealth and status of a, of a country or a nation. Um, but it's like, it's still just because we're in this pandemic doesn't mean that those, those things that were preventing companies from lowering prices before or whatever don't still exist. So yeah, I think you're right. I, I wonder like how far, how much of an impact does this really have for the WHO just to say, please lower your prices? And I think, Aisha, you even wrote that it was, I, um, you know, Doctors Without Borders as well, that were like, yeah, yeah we, we agree we need to have lower prices on these life-saving drugs. I don't know. I guess we'll have to see, right, how, they, how these companies respond and if they respond and what they can do. And um, yeah. yeah, I mean... It's an exceptional circumstance, right? Yeah. So hopefully these companies recognize that and out of, you know, compassionate and, you know, <laughs> turn on compassionate grounds, they sort of, you know, evaluate that. And um, and again, I'm not sure how great the need even is. It's not like uh, vaccines where, you know, you, you have billions and billions of people needing to get doses. So mm -hmm. um, this is just for severe, it's for a specific, you know, uh, subset of patients mm -hmm. that are severely or critically ill. So mm -hmm. yeah, those are just things uh, to consider. Yeah, I, I worry too that as things start to improve in, in countries like ours where we have had access to vaccines, I, I worry that... Um, you know, maybe we could start to forget what that was like when so many yeah. hundreds of new cases, thousands of new cases were happening each day and so many people were in, in the ICUs. And I worry that we'll forget what that's like, even though that's still happening in other countries that aren't able to roll out the vaccines like we have or, or that sort of thing. And maybe maybe won't have really great access um, to vaccines. I know that, um, you know, it's not catastrophic just yet, but I know... Australia has seen some cases kind of going up and, and the numbers are, I don't even, I think they're in the double digits. I don't even think they're in the triple digits, but it's more than they've had in a long time. Um, and not to say they're, they're not a country that can afford to get the vaccine, but I know that their rollout has been very slow. So it's easy to see how uh, a country that's not as well off as, as Australia is could still be like really in the weeds with this and have a lot of um, patients who have severe COVID. Okay, well, that's the end of this episode of the Xbox Life Science Podcast. If you liked today's show, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks, everyone, and see you all next week. Bye. 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 Thanks for listening to the Xbox Life Science Podcast. If you enjoyed our discussions today, please share the episode with your friends and colleagues, and be sure to subscribe in order to be notified when a new episode is released. To join in on the discussion, you can find Xtalks on social media, email podcast at xtalks.com or comment on the articles directly. Links are in the show description. Take a moment to join our community at xtalks.com to get access to everything we have to offer, including webinars, job listings, virtual meetings, articles, and more.
The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers sharing them. They should not be taken as professional advice and do not necessarily reflect the policy or position Honeycomb Worldwide. For further information, email us at podcast at xtalks.com. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week.